Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I am your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And for this episode of Eye on the Cure, I'm very privileged to have as my guest, Judge David Tatel, who has served on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit since 1994. And I'm going to quickly review some of the highlights of David's career in a moment. But first, welcome, David. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Well, thank you for saying that. And I'm delighted to have you as a guest. It's important to know that David has X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, but even more important, he's had an incredible career really for any legal professional, but just all the things you've done are quite impressive. And I'm going to go through some of those things. So to start off early in your career, you got your law degree from University of Chicago. Then you taught at the University of Michigan Law School, so some Midwest activity there. And then you joined the firm Sidley, Austin, Burgess, and Smith in Chicago. And you were the founding director of the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, and director of the Office for Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which is now HHS, if I understand correctly, Health and Human Services. And then in D.C., you joined Hogan and Hartson before you were appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And when you were with Hogan and Hartson, you founded and directed the firm's education practice. So since you joined the Court of Appeals in 94, I presume it was President Clinton who appointed you? Yes. He appointed me to fill the seat that was created by uh, Ruth Ginsburg's elevation to the Supreme Court. Oh, really? Very, very interesting. And was that a lengthy process? Did you have to go through interviews? What was that like? Yes, uh, not as lengthy as it's become today. Um, I got the call from the White House in May 1994. There were extensive interviews for the next month, including uh, FBI investigation, ABA investigation, things like that. And then I was formally nominated right around Memorial Day. And then during the summer, uh, I had more interviews, more questionnaires. I met senators. And then in October, I had my confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was confirmed by the Senate shortly after that and sworn in in late October. So it took about four months. Right. Well, that that's a pretty intensive process. Was it emotionally for you to get appointed? I mean, that that's a, such a... Well, I, I was thrilled to be appointed. I very much enjoyed my work at Hogan. I, my law practice was interesting to me. And I could have continued it, but this was just an opportunity of a lifetime for a judge to become not just a federal judge, but a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals. So I was thrilled. Uh, Of course. I mean, it's, it's it's such an important court. And I wanted to let our listeners know 
that some pretty impressive judges and legal professionals have come out of that court. You mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg and our chief justice today, John Roberts, came from that court. Um, Merrick Garland, our U.S. Attorney General, came from that court. And Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is in a Senate hearing as we speak, I saw it on my Washington Post feed, um, she's getting interviewed. I'm sure that's pretty intense. She came from that court. So some very important people, judges, have come out of that court for those of us, including me, who aren't that familiar with the legal system at the federal level, can you tell us about the types of cases that court hears? Yes. The D.C. Circuit, there are 11 regional courts of appeals around the country. They all have numbers. The First Circuit is the Northeast. The Ninth Circuit is the West. The Fifth Circuit is part of the South. So the country is divided up into 11 regional circuits. Um, the D.C. Circuit is generally viewed as the most important, uh, even though we have the smallest geographic area, just the District of Columbia. But the reason the D.C. Circuit is so important is that it essentially, two reasons. One is it essentially presides over the federal government. So almost all cases involving the federal government, whether they're regulatory or administrative or political, are decided by the D.C. Circuit. And also, unlike the other regional circuits, the D.C. Circuit is as a national our courts, our cases come from all across the country. So in a sense, the court looks like the Supreme Court in the sense that it's it's national in scope. And it hears uh, large numbers of highly controversial, imp important regulatory questions, plus very, very complex and highly controversial political questions. Can, can you give us an example of something recent that you've heard that Fits that. Sure. Yeah. For example, we've heard, my court has heard all the cases involving efforts to gain access to former President Trump's financial papers. In fact, I wrote one of the major opinions called Trump versus Mazers. Uh, we're now hearing all the cases involving the congressional committee looking into the events of January 6th. We're hearing all of those cases involving Congress's efforts to force to enforce subpoenas for testimony. There's just so many other topics that when in the middle of, um, of Whitewater and Monica Lewinsky issues with Bill Clinton, my court heard all of those cases. It heard all of the political cases involving the Bush and Reagan administrations. Um, the court hears cases involving most decisions of the Federal Communications Commission, the Environmental Protection Agency, all come to my court. I wrote all three opinions involving net neutrality a few years ago. So it's a very big, important court. That is, it's a fascinating place to work, and the cases we hear are pretty important. Yeah, that that is quite impressive, just the visibility of these issues. And I, I can only imagine that the preparation for hearing and making judgments must be incredible. And you're doing it with obviously low vision. And can can you talk about that? What it's like to prepare and perhaps what you do that's maybe different from a judge with vision to do that? Well, actually, Ben, it's with no vision. I have no vision at all. So um, I prepare for these cases 
And you're right. Preparing to hear these cases can be very time-consuming and complex because some of them are quite big. The smaller cases, you know, I can prepare for one of these smaller cases that we have in a couple of hours, maybe, if I'm lucky. But the big cases sometimes take days. And it involves reading the briefs that the parties submit. It involves reading the record, that is, all the evidence from the lower court or the federal agency. Uh, It involves a lot of legal research and a huge amount of discussion. I have four law clerks, and my law clerks play a major role in helping me prepare uh, for these cases. I also have a full-time reader who reads materials to me, and I use a Braille typewriter, a human wear voice note for typing and reading some materials. <laughs> I use a Braille typewriter because I never learned to type. When I was in the seventh or eighth grade, girls learned to type and boys went to shop. And so I never learned to type. I actually have a laptop right here next to me because I've decided maybe I should learn to type. It would be easier. I wouldn't have to use these devices that you know, are clunky and difficult to use. But at the moment, that's the the technology I use is a reader. Although what's interesting about that, Ben, is that when I started on the Court of Appeals, I I think the reader probably read 95% of the materials to me. Briefs, record, opinions, correspondence, memos, everything. Now I think the reader doesn't read more than 20% to me. Everything else I'm able to read on my own, and it's all because of this enormously valuable technology that has emerged in the past 15 years. My court has gone completely digital, so there is no paper anymore, which means my computer, my Braille computer, can read all of these materials to me uh, directly. So it's it's been a real revolution for me in terms of the way I prepare and do my work. Thanks to technology. That, that's great. That's great. So you mentioned you, you don't have any eyesight now, but when you right. started in 94, did you still have some vision? No. No, I haven't had any eyesight since the early 70s. Okay. So you've really been reliant on um, these technologies, whatever technologies have been available or people to help you actually um, get the audio. And would you say that because you rely on the audio and you don't have documents or at least written documents you can refer to, that your memory is well-developed or maybe better developed than somebody who's sighted? I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. I can't prove it, but I think that, I think it's inevitable that, you know, the brain adjusts and compensates for the loss of one sensation and develops others. And yeah, I, I don't have any doubt that my memory has developed significantly because of that. <laughs> Years ago, before this, the Braille computer came along and the other devices, when I would speak publicly, I would memorize the speech. And I could memorize a half hour, 45 minute speech in in no time, particularly if I'd written it myself, I generally just knew it. But now I don't have to do that anymore. And I wonder whether my memory is getting to atrophy a little bit, but I don't think so. Well, 
That's interesting that you yeah. memorized entire speeches. That that's yeah. impressive. So so speaking of technology, you are co-chair of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Science, Technology and Law, and you're also a member of the National Academy of Education. And you seem to have a proclivity toward science and education. So do you feel like those are important areas for you professionally as well, in addition to using them as ways for you to do your job? Yes, definitely. But they, they have different origins. The interest in science and education have different origins in my life. The science comes from uh, the fact that my father was a physicist. And when I was a kid, uh, I spent a lot of time with him at his lab, and he took me on many uh, scientific expeditions with him, including a three-month trip to, uh, to South America. Uh, and so science was deeply embedded in my DNA. In fact, in high school, in the beginning of college, I went to the University of Michigan. I was planning. I, was, I, ma- I majored in physics and math. But... My interests changed in the 60s because of the civil rights movement and the Kennedy administration and many other things. And so I shifted and decided to go to law school. But I've always maintained a deep interest in science. I read science fiction. I love to read biographies of scientists. And my court hears many cases that fall at the intersection of law and science. Many of these cases we review are based on quite complex scientific records. And so I've always, I've kept my interest in it. And as I, and as I said, it's, it's very much part of the work of my court. Now, the National Academies, this Committee on Science, Technology, and Law, it's a, a national academy committee made up of judges and, and scientific scholars around the country who discuss, who meet and discuss twice a year some pretty big issues that involve both science, technology, and law. In fact, we have our meeting later today. Uh, We were supposed to meet at Caltech. My co-chair is David Baltimore, the former president of Caltech. And we meet there once a year, but because of COVID, we had to go remote. Right. That's my interest in science. Education is different. My wife, Edie, is a teacher. When I was in law school, she was teaching inner city school, uh, high school in uh, Chicago. And I was fascinated with her work. And because of my work in Chicago, I got involved in a number of education cases. And so uh, so education also became something uh, that I've been very interested in, in fact, was the core of my law practice at Hogan and Hartson. Yeah, it's so interesting. You've had, as you were just saying, an interest in education, civil rights during a time when civil rights was really paramount in our country. And then so much on the science and technology side, that, that's such a wide-ranging combination of interests over the years. And I would like to ask you a personal question, if this is okay. How did you meet Edie? Edie and I uh, both went to the University of Michigan okay. in the early 60s. We, I was one year ahead of her. We did not know each other, even though we had lots of friends in common. And I left Michigan. I graduated in 63 and went to Chicago to the law school. And Edie graduated one year later and came to Northwestern to get her master's in English. 
And partway through the year, a mutual friend of ours from uh, Michigan fixed us up. And the rest, as they say, is history. We've been married for 57 years. Well, that is quite a great story. And congratulations on 57 years of marriage. And we have four children and eight grandchildren to show for it. I know you really enjoy your kids and your grandkids. I I wanted to go back to earlier in your life and just hear a little more about your journey with X-Linked RP. Can you talk about when you realized that you had a vision issue and what that diagnostic journey was like? Sure. I can't, I actually don't remember a time when I didn't have a vision problem. As a little kid, I couldn't see well at night. And it was a big mystery to my parents. No one understood what was wrong with little David's eyes that I couldn't see well at night. They had me eating a lot of carrots when I was in elementary school because they thought at the time that would make a difference. So nighttime vision was a problem. The other thing that was a problem for me is that I was a totally obsessed baseball kid, both watching it. I was a Washington Senators fan, but I loved to play it. And I always, uh, starting, I I have memories that go all the way back to the third or fourth grade, having to position myself on the field so I could see the ball. I needed to have a dark background. So I wanted to play a position, for example, where the batter would be between me and some dark trees or a dark building because I could see the ball better. And also there were times when I would get hit by a ball because I just didn't see it coming from the side. So we knew something was wrong. At that time, no one knew what this, um, this is, we're talking early fifties. No one knew. My mother and father took me to ophthalmologists and they had no idea. I could read just fine and write. I was, everything else was fine. What wasn't any other problem except those two things. But finally in 1957, when I was 15 years old, another ophthalmologist who also had no idea what it was, referred us to the National Institutes of Health. And I went there in 1957, and that's where they diagnosed RP. Doc, who did it, played a major role in the foundation and FFB way back at the beginning, um, and then went to Boston Eye Who am I thinking of? Elliot Burson? Yeah, Elliot Burson. Wow. Elliot was the doctor who diagnosed this in 1957. Now, of course, in 1957, they had no idea. You know, Elliot said, you know, we think your eyesight will decline someday. We don't know when. This was 57. They had just, you know, Watson had just discovered the genome and the double helix. So we didn't know much about this. They warned me and my mostly my mother that, you know, I could lose my eyesight someday, but no one knew when. And also no one knew what the genetic consequences were. In fact, at that time, they all said the if I had children, the only children who would be at risk would be my sons, which turns out to be completely wrong. So anyway, I was diagnosed in 57. I'd say every year I went back to NIH for more tests. They wanted to follow the development of my RP. I also went to the Wilmer Eye Clinic a couple of times. I went to Boston Eye Ear a couple of times. But we didn't really, oh, and for quite a while I took vitamin A. I can't remember whether that was Burson who recommended it or whoever, but I took a lot of vitamin A. The big change for me came in the early 70s when I'd say in just six months, my eyesight declined dramatically to the point where I couldn't 
read any longer and had to shift to using my secretary to read to me and where it just became unsafe for me to travel by myself. That, that was, this was 1972. And then from then on, I, I've basically functioned without sight since the early 70s. Wow. Yeah, you were dealing with RP at a time, as you said, when so little was known. I know yeah. when the foundation was founded in, in 71, we thought that very little was known. But I know George Wald won a Nobel in 72 just for understanding how the retina processed light. Uh-huh. So yes, I can imagine how little was known. Yeah. In 57. Yeah. And my guess is you talked about taking vitamin A. I mean, that that was Elliot Burson's legacy. So I'm guessing yeah. it was he who uh, prescribed yeah. that. I'm sure it was. By the way, I knew Van Berman who started, you know, the original FFB was called the Retinitis Pigmentosa Foundation. And Ben had two daughters, both who had RP. Ben was from Baltimore. And uh, we knew Ben, and uh, my mother was an active member of Ben's little foundation, the RP Foundation at the time. Really? That's great. You go way back to the foundation's early days and even a little further. Yeah, even pre-foundation. Yeah. Ben was a wonderful man. Ben was great. Ben was really devoted to this, and he worked really hard to create the foundation and start Think, you know, raising money for research. Ben, ben was a real pioneer. Right. Would you say you've done so much in your career, it seems that really your vision loss hasn't been a barrier, but would you say that vision loss shaped your direction at all or, or sort of had you adjusting in what career you decided to pursue? Or did you always know you wanted to be involved in law or education? I don't think it shaped anything, Ben. Uh, you know, I, I was functioning as a sighted person up through 1970, 71. And by then, my career was pretty much shaped. I was, I'd gone to law school. I had been in a law firm. I was running a civil rights organization. I was interested in education. Nothing's changed since then. And I don't think my eyesight affected any of those decisions. I mean, Edie and I, you know, we were young and optimistic and sure, we knew there was this risk. But, you know, when you're young, you you don't, you, we just didn't sit around worrying about it at that point. Right. Um, and by the, by the time my eyesight really declined, my career was baked in at that point. So I don't think blindness affected it one way or another. Right. And you've had an incredible trajectory. So you've done some amazing work and congratulations on, on Thank you. doing so much. So to close things right. off, I know we've talked recently about the new addition to your family, your guide dog. Right. You're very excited about your guide dog. So I wanted to take a moment to hear, hear about she's your right, guide. She's right here. Maybe I can get her to come say hello. Hey, Vixen, come here. Yes. What's her so name? Her name is Vixen. And she's a now little over four-year-old German Shepherd. She comes from Fidelco, the guide dog breeding and training program in Connecticut. I started using a mobility cane when I left HEW in 1979. And, and I got really good with my cane. I, I traveled all over the country. 
you know, in my law practice, I was really, really good with a cane. Beginning to use the cane was a huge step. I mean, it was it was very hard to decide to use the cane because it made me so visible as a blind person. Um, but I'm so glad I did it because it gave me an enormous amount of independence and also eliminated all the you know, misunderstandings that occur when people don't know you're blind or can't see well. So the cane was liberating for me. Um, and I could have continued to use it forever. But for the past 10 years or so, I felt like I wanted even more independence. You know, I was I was going back and forth. The traffic in Washington was bad. There were lots of plazas that were difficult to navigate with a cane. I mean, as good as I was, there are many people who are far better at using canes than I am. And I was yearning for more independence. I, I didn't want to depend on my law clerks to get from the metro to the courthouse. I rode, rode the metro myself with my cane, but traffic and the corners were, were pretty dangerous. And I could do them myself. And I did from time to time, but it, it was just easier to walk with a law clerk. And uh, so, and I was, I wanted more independence, but I never thought I would get a guide dog because everything I read told me that to get a dog, you had to go to the facility for a month and learn to use a dog. And there was no way I was going to be able to do that. Well, one day, our youngest daughter was visiting here with her two little boys and their dog people. And one of them, the then an 11, 10 year old, maybe brought along a podcast about guide dogs. In fact, they're from Berkeley. And so they know all about the program in Marin that trains guide dogs. And they see guide dogs in training in Berkeley all the time, the kids do. So Ruben, my grandson, asked me to watch this uh, podcast with him. And we did. And at the end of the podcast, it said, you know, they oh, it showed their lovely facility up in Marin. But then it said, you know, if it's not possible for you to come here, we can bring the dog to you. Well, that's the first time I ever heard that that was possible. So I started thinking about it. Edie and I began to think about it. And the first person I called was Karen Petra, who's on the FFB board, because I've just always been really impressed with Karen and her dogs and how independent she is. And Karen opened up all kinds of things to us, including most important Fidelco, which doesn't even have a facility. They always bring the dog to you. And so Edie and I applied and I got accepted. And six months later, uh, my trainer, Pete, showed up with this magnificent German shepherd named Vixen. And I then went through the hardest two months of my, two weeks of my entire life to learn to work with this dog. And I would say a half a dozen times in that two weeks, I was ready to quit. I, I didn't think I would ever be able to figure it out. But, you know, I worked at it. And my trainer was really, really good. The dog was really, really good. And then he left. And there I was with just the dog. And and it was still rough. I still, once in a while, Vixen and I got lost on the Metro platform. German Shepherds are very independent. And sometimes she decided to go somewhere I didn't want to go. But I survived it. And she survived it. And I'd say after about six months, nine months, we really, I could feel the difference. I could feel the way we were working together better. And the rest has been great. This Vixen has given me just a huge amount of independence. I haven't had this kind of independence in 40 years. We live here in rural Virginia, I mentioned to you, and she and I 
we go on very long walks every day. In fact, when we're done here, we're going to go off on our shorter uh, weekday walk, which is a three-miler. On weekends, it's a six-miler. And, you know, Vixen and I just go off. She loves it. I love it. Uh, When we're in the city, she commutes to the courthouse with me. She loves the metro and the escalators. In fact, she's the only person I know who likes the escal- likes the metro. <laughs> and, and she's great. She takes me right to the courthouse and uh, hangs out with me all day. We go for walks in the neighborhood. She travels with us. We just got back from Denver. Um, she's just a magnificent animal who has become, who Edie and I have, in fact, our total family has completely fallen in love with this dog. And, uh, but she's, she's my independent. Seriously, Ben, I haven't had this kind of physical independence in uh, 40 years. And Edie reminds me, looking back on it, I wish I had done it. But I didn't know what I, I, you don't know what you don't know. And until Ruben showed up with this podcast, I didn't know it was possible for me to get a guide dog. And I sure am glad I have one. Well, it's it's great that your 11-year-old grandson right. did that and you, you were able to learn something through yeah. him. And uh, right. it sounds like you have this wonderful relationship with Vixen. And uh, Yeah, it's great. I never understood this. We had dogs. When, when our children were small, we had uh, collies. Uh, but they were the kids' dogs and Edie took care of them. My biggest issue with the dogs was avoiding tripping over the dogs. And so I was never much of a dog person. But I've become a 100% dog person. Edie bought me a little sign that now my desk at the courthouse, it says, ask me about my dog. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, great. You know, I do. I have this, the dog and I have this unique relationship. Any guide dog owner knows this. You just develop this tight relationship with this dog where she knows me and I know her. She uh, she communicates with me in such subtle ways that, you know, two years ago, I had no idea about it. But now I pick up all of the signals and it makes me feel so good that I can respond to her needs just as she responds to mine. That's a wonderful story. And it sounds like yeah. Vixen is as lucky as you because she sounds like she really enjoys her role. Yeah, it's really good. But she's still better trained than I am. <laughs> I constantly am learning things from her. That's great. Well, David, this has been just a fun and informative conversation. Learned a lot about our legal system and the court system. But I really appreciate you sharing your story. You've done so many interesting things, had a, a great career, and it's very inspirational. It's very inspirational. I, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day for talking with us and being a guest on the podcast. I will let you and Vixen get to your walk. It is a nice day here in the D.C. Virginia area. Well, Ben, I'll just say I'm happy to do this. I've enjoyed the conversation. And as you know, I'm a big fan of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. I think it's an important, uh, serious organization that's making huge strides towards dealing with inherited retinal diseases. Um, I I am enormously impressed with this organization. Well, thank you for being a member of our family. You've been with us for so many years and supported our mission very strongly, and and we greatly appreciate that. So listeners, thank you again for joining the podcast. David, thank you again for being our guest today. And I look forward to having everyone back for our next episode. 
Thanks again. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.